Hi, this is Andi Stanley, host of The Adoption Files. Today I have with me the always incredible Lorene Pittman. Lorene is a California baby scoop era adoptee. She is the author of the memoir, The Lies That Bind. She has a blog, adoptionmytruth.com, and is the author of many other pieces that we will list in the show notes. Thank you for being here today, Lorene. Thank you, Andi, and thanks for having me. Um, I'm excited about talking about all things adoption. Well, I really appreciate you being here today. You are my first California adoptee. Lucky you. This is this is the great sealed state of California where you were born and raised and where I have lived for most of my life. So you grew up knowing that you're adopted? I did. I don't remember ever being told. Um, I have a brother who is also adopted. Um, We are not related. Uh, My parents adopted him a couple of years before they adopted me. So they raised two adopted children, no biological children. And somehow we grew up just knowing. So we must have been told when we were very young, was just always understood. It was always there, this this knowing that we were um, adopted. And um, yeah, we always knew. So it it was not a shock. It was never really talked about though, which is weird because even though we always knew, it wasn't something that we talked about. It was always something that was kind of like, well, you're adopted and don't, you know, other people don't know that was kind of a given too. other people don't know. It's not something you just share out of the blue, but it kind of made me feel special for a while. Cause you know, you're told you're special and you're to- told you're the chosen, the chosen child. And um, yeah, it, it was kind of a weird dichotomy knowing about it, but not talking about it. So it didn't feel comfortable to be able to ask questions or did you even have the language to ask any questions? I never asked any questions. Um, And my brother and I didn't either. I mean, I don't even think that we shared our fantasies about it because, you know, all adoptees have this uh, ghost family and they think about their parents and we absolutely did now but we talk about it as adults, but never really asked my mother any questions. I remember adoption coming up one time when I was kind of in the second, probably like second or third grade. And I was at a friend's house and my mother coming to pick me up um, and mention, you know, having a discussion all hushed in the kitchen with this other mother that, you know, it's not something we talk about or we don't, you know, I don't know, just she, I think my mother was afraid of us getting teased or being shamed about it, which I don't know. We were just kind of, I was oblivious to that. I just, I was adopted. So what, you know, I guess maybe in the back of my mind thinking it's kind of a normal thing, you know, until I got older and realized, realized really what it, you know, what it meant that somebody gave you up and now you're living with strangers um, but they don't feel like strangers when you're a child. That's all, you know, you know, they're, they're your parents, but, um, yeah, we, uh, we didn't ask any questions of, of my parents. I don't, I never really asked them anything till I was graduated from college or just about ready to graduate from college. 
Um, and then I, you know, got curious and asked them questions. But before then, it wasn't talked about. No questions were asked. So did your parents, your adoptive parents, were they receptive when you asked questions after college? It was, it was kind of an aha moment for me. Um, I, I tell this story in my, in my, in my, in my memoir, uh, it was my aha moment when I, um, I applied to spend my senior year of college abroad uh, in England and um, was accepted to do that and uh, was very excited about it and found out I was going to uh, Bradford, England, which was way up north. And my, um, I was excited to tell my parents as I was living at home, going to school locally, going to college, the local state college and living at home. And I'm so excited to get away. And I told my mother, you know, hey, I got accepted and, and, get, and here's where I'm going. I'm going to Bradford, England. And my mother about fell out of her chair and she was like, oh my God, Bradford, England of all places. And I'm like, what? And she said, well, you know, my family is from there. You know, her mother, my grandmother came over from England, you know, as a young adult, uh, I think a teenager actually. And, um, you know, she was familiar with Bradford, had never been there herself, but had all of this historical data, you know, paperwork and, and old pictures and postcards and all kinds of things from Bradford, England. She's pulling all this stuff out and family stuff uh, with her, you know, maiden name, Varley, and, and telling me, oh my God, this is great. You can go over there and look up your family and blah, blah, blah. And, and here's the last name and here's some people and here's some addresses and blah, blah, blah. And I mean, I remember just looking at her and going, I don't care. I mean, I didn't say that out loud, but in my head, I'm thinking, I don't care about these people. This isn't my family. I mean, it, it was like, wait a minute. I'm, you know, I had just no desire to look up this Varley family. Um, you know, and, and I, I thought maybe it's just because I'm, I'm, uh, you know, this young adult looking forward to this adventure out of the country, you know, once in a lifetime getting to travel over to a new country and, um, have this great experience. Maybe I thought maybe that was it, but it really got me thinking about my, about being adopted and what that meant. And, um, I actually, so that year away, I, I did, uh, think a lot about it and, wrote to my parents quite a bit and started asking questions and telling them I wanted to, um, I wanted to search and find out more. And they were kind of supportive. They were, uh, they said, okay, you know, that's fine. Um, and so that was the plan. When I got back from England that year, I was going to start searching and, um, so that's, that's what prompted me to do it. So it was that aha moment. It wasn't really asking questions. It was about kind of shutting down my mother's uh, talking about our family and you must look these people up and this and that. And I just thought, well, I, this isn't my family. Isn't that funny how that, that happens? You know, for some of us, it's a process, you know, of slowly coming to realize that we have questions and doubts and, and that we don't fit. Some people they know from like very young, this doesn't feel right. I don't, 
these is not and then other people have like that epiphany that moment where it just kind of crystallizes for them I, I don't know if I'm making sense or not yeah you are making sense I get that totally and especially for late discovery adoptees like yourself and I know a few others you know still having that feeling growing up and I'm um you know that something's different you know um, but yeah, there is a, there was a, for me there, that was the aha moment where, you know, everything's just going along just fine. And it's a fact I'm adopted, you know, big deal. But then, yeah, it was that aha moment where, you know, there's more to me than this and these people. And I'm, you know, need to find that out. So <clears throat> yeah, that's when it kind of all came together for me. Did you feel like you needed your adoptive parents permission to feel okay about looking for the answers and wanting to know your story? I was always uh, fairly independent and headstrong in that. And I, I remember thinking that they might not approve of it, but they didn't outwardly not approve. And I, I, I wouldn't say they were supportive. Um, I don't know. I, I didn't feel discouraged, but they, they tried to discourage me. I, I will say um, they did, but um, they, I, I, when I came home and settled in and, and had a little discussion with, with them about, I'm going to find them. I'm going to reach out and find them, find my biological family. Um, they took me aside one evening and uh, I could tell they had had this discussion that there was something they better tell me about, about what they knew. And um, my mother, that's when my mother, they, my mother and my father, they both told me, they said, well, you know, there's something you should know about your biological mom. Um, and they said, well, you know, she was in prison when you were born. And I think that they thought that that would discourage me. Um, but it didn't, it was just kind of like, well, oh, that's interesting. Wow. And I kind of, it almost made me want to go further and, you know, it made me think, well, well, why did she give me up? Obviously she was in prison. She couldn't keep me, you know, it just made, it just gave me more questions to want to have answered. So, um, I, I think that was their attempt at discouraging me. I thought that they would think that I'd go, wow, bad person. I'm not going to look for this bad person. But um, that wasn't what happened. So, yeah, it sounds like it actually made you like more determined to find out what had happened, like how you came to be. So I, I think yeah. that's, you know, that's one thing I hear from people like you, you know, we're trying to protect you or you don't want to know or the details are so. Um, tragic that it's just better that you not know I there's all these people who are making decisions for us about what we can handle right what we're allowed to know and what we're mature enough to understand and I it feels like this attempt to rob us of our agency and to keep us uh, childlike you know like we just don't we don't think you can handle it 
Right. Always wondering, you know, keep wondering, you know, this is better for you anyway, what the situation you have here, you know, or, or, or deliberately talking poorly about um, these people that were your biological, where you came from, which always seems to backfire, you know, um, oh, if, if someone had told me, you know, she was a terrible person and, and uh, she didn't know who your father was and, or, or just some, you know, I mean, heck, she was in prison. I don't know what she did. Actually, they did tell me it was because of drugs, but, you know, it was the 60s. So, you know, and here, this was in the 80s when they told me. So I was like, oh, okay, no big deal, you know. I mean, it wasn't, I didn't think badly of her. And, yeah, it made me just more curious. Yeah. And, you know, they've done studies with the children of, divorced parents and for some reason they don't seem capable of applying this to the to a children who are adopted but they've done studies that show that children of divorced parents who hear their parents talk badly about the other parent often end up internalizing that because they know that part of them comes from that parent And so if that parent is described as being a bad person, the child will wonder what's wrong with me? Am I a bad person too? If somebody says I look like my parent and that parent is a terrible person, then am I a terrible person too? And so they know that it has adverse effects on the children of, of divorced people to hear the parents talked badly about but for some reason adoptive parents and our culture in general thinks it's okay to yeah. basically talk trash about our family because that makes them feel better i guess the adoptive makes them feel better and it's a, they're hoping that maybe we that will help us to not want to deal with it. Same with, you know, I guess that's the same reason um, parents of divorced people do that too. You're hoping to block that person out of your children's lives because you're trying to block them out of your life. Same thing. That's inter- That's an interesting comparison. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think you can say we don't get along and maybe your your parent isn't safe for you to be around right now. But with, you know, kids with divorced parents, you don't say like that person is no longer your fault. We're just going to erase them and, and then let you think they're terrible people. It's, I don't know, it's a weird system that we live in. So you were born in California. Your mom was in a California prison. You were born in a time where parents didn't even necessarily tell their adopted child that they were adopted, but you grew up knowing it was normal because you were a kid. So that was just what was normal is you. Yep. Yeah. So now in your twenties, you decided to start looking for the answers. Did your adoptive parents have any information to give you beyond the fact that you're mother had been in prison when you were born yes they had the actual divorce order a divorce 
we just talked about divorce parents yeah. and um, the adoption order um, decree, whatever you want to call it, but it's uh, and it had my name, uh, my my it, it said baby girl Mitchell, so I knew um, my last name, mm-hmm. and I assumed that was my mother's last name. So actually, that piece of information, um, along with uh the the information that they gave me that they thought would deter me from looking the fact that she was in prison with those two bits of information it was fairly easy to find her uh she had a fairly common uh name uh i had the the i had hired a private investigator at the time and um you know, it cost me, I think, $1,500, which was a lot of money for me back then because I was still just finishing up school and but I was working uh, a little bit, a part-time job. And um, so it cost me $1,500. I hired a private investigator, said, hey, look, here's her last name. And she was in prison. I was born in prison. And it was really easy for her, the private investigator, to find her in the prison system because she had the last name. She looked and looked and looked, found someone with that last name who was in the, in the house, in the hospital, in the prison at that time. And it was, went to the prison hospital during the few days right around the time that I was born. So this has to be her and it was the right last name. And so she found her first name. So, so then she just kind of had to figure out what happened to her after she was released and she got a release date and started tracking that and, and was able to find her. Um, at the, at the same time, after I had contacted the private investigator, I also, um, went to the, uh, county social services, the adoption services to, talk to uh, a social worker about signing a waiver of confidentiality and having that put in my file. Because at this point, I don't know, maybe someone's looking for me. So if you sign this waiver of confidentiality, supposedly they put it in your file. And if anybody's looking for you, your biological, uh, a biological relative, um, they sign a bio, they sign a confidentiality waiver too, and it goes in your file. If there two of those documents are there, they can hook you up, right? Well, I walked down to the, I, I walked into the office and met with this guy and signed the waiver and read, read the paperwork. And he's telling me, okay, well, um, there's nothing in your file. No one has signed a waiver yet, but you know, we'll see what happens. And so he hands me this um, envelope. I didn't know what it was. And I'm like, okay, thanks. You know, he's like, I'll be in touch if you know we hear anything on this end. And I, don't, I have no idea what's in this envelope. I walk out to the car and open up this envelope and he had done some research before our appointment apparently pulled my file and uh, wrote in detail kind of like a story it was my non-identifying information but he did use first names and um, of siblings of uh, my my uh, birth mother and the and the parents of of my birth mother my grandparents he used first names and so I mean, I was shocked at the information that he gave me. I had heard about non-identifying information and being able to get that, but I didn't even ask for it. I didn't understand it at that point. I was on, you know, this was my 
me just thinking about starting this search and it didn't even occur to me to ask about to ask for any non-identifying information but he had provided it to me so um you know i was and and then too as i'm reading it i mean i read it over and over and over i must have sat there in the car for an hour and um you know it was like i said a story and it was my story it felt like and um uh, I kind of had expected, even to this day, I've talked to other adoptees about getting their non-identifying information, and I kind of expected it to be like just a list, a laundry list of things. Birth mother had dark hair, dark eyes. She uh, was in school or, you know, just stuff like that. You know, I just expected a laundry list or, you know, and about the birth dad. Didn't, we don't know anything about him, not identified, you know, or something like that but mine was like this story and i i reprint that in my uh, memoir as well because i was just really fascinated with it but all of a sudden i had a story i had a birth story um it was we it was weird and kind of sad because you know i was born in prison and and then relinquished but he had written it out like this beautiful little story and um so that was weird so that was the information i had to start with and i uh, you know turned that information over to the private investigator as well and um so they had relatives names and so that made it even easier for them uh to find yeah that's that's amazing Uh, so that was really unusual that that social worker actually provided identifying information in your non-identifying information like for people listening who may be unfamiliar with non-identifying information the whole point like the way that the laws are written is that all identifying information including family members names will be redacted from whatever is released to the adoptee. And, you know, Lorene got a story. Other people do receive a paragraph or a, just a list. So, so much of it depends on who actually is present when you ask. And that ties a lot into the laws in the state of California. And we'll talk about that a little more in a moment, but you had something else you wanted to bring up, Lorraine? Yes, it, it, yes, I agree with you. It was unusual um, that he used, he used first names and I guess he thought that that would be non-identifying enough because he did not use last names, but I had the last name from, you know, the paperwork that my parents had. So it was, I was able to piece things together. Um, and some of the sibling first names were unusual, so that made it easier to find the relatives. But one thing that was weird, I thought, about um, what happened with the social worker, he he did that, and that was, I was told a story um, with names. Um, and like I said, he handed it to me, he took my um, signed waiver and said he was gonna put it in the file. And, and at the end of the, story that he gave me, the non-identifying information, there is a paragraph there and it said, you know, Lorraine, the, your, um, this, you know, your story is over 20 years old, but 
you know, we will do our best to, to help you uh, find your birth family. And that struck me as really weird. I was like, what? How is he going to help me? That's, I thought that's not even legal. Um, in fact, you know, I had a copy of the waiver that I signed. He gave me a copy of it. And it, and it had a, a note, you know, in bold letters that said, even though you're signing this and you're giving permission for, to share information, um, the county social services in, will, does not actively search, will not, cannot legally actively search for anybody to, and will not solicit a waiver from anybody. So uh, I, I wish I had the wording handy. I don't, but uh, yeah. And, and he said he was going to be looking and I, I kind of half didn't believe him. I thought, oh, he's just saying that, you know, and, and plus he can't legally do it. Uh, that's why I had hired the private investigator already. Okay. So, um, and that's why I guess I, I didn't, you know, ask for the non-identifying information. I thought I've got this private investigator on the job, but um, anyway, it actually complicated things for my reunion or non-reunion because he did actively search for her and he did find her, the, the social worker. And uh, I didn't know this. He didn't tell me anything about his progress um, along the way. But at the same time, my private investigator was looking up relatives, trying to find my birth mother. So was this social worker. And the social worker found her first. And the social worker found her through relatives because she was unlisted. She was actually in hiding, didn't want to be found. But of course, nobody knew this at this point. Um, so they found her through relatives. And they uh, apparently the social worker called my mother's mother, my grandmother. And the grandmother said, well, you've got the wrong name you've got the wrong person uh, because my daughter's never had a child because the social worker said well she said who's looking for michelle is her name who's looking for michelle and um the social worker said her daughter and my grandmother said oh well you've got the wrong michelle mitchell because she, my daughter's never had any children so that happened and uh but then, of course, the grandmother talks to Michelle and tells her, hey, I got this weird call. You know, this guy's looking for. Well, and then I guess I don't know how long of a difference, how long of a wait it was. But then my private investigator calls my grandmother. Kind of the same thing. You know, your daughter, your granddaughter is looking for, you know, no, no, no. You've got the wrong person. This is so weird. Who, you know, you, I've already told you guys because she thought it was kind of the same kind of people calling. Well, that, and then, you know, she told Michelle, the grandmother, my grandmother told Michelle, and Michelle flipped, flipped out. Um, and she called the private investigator and just let her have it and was so pissed off and said, I don't want to be found. And they said, well, we would have been able to find you much easier if you hadn't, you know, tried to hide because we could have contacted you directly instead of, you know, all these relatives we had to contact first. Yeah. Um, and she said, well, that should have told you something, you know, I didn't want to be found. So I don't know if she would have been more receptive to just the social worker reaching out to her and maybe she would have signed the waiver and we could have, you know, connected. 
But the two of them ganging up on her, as she called it, at once uh, was too much for her. So that really pissed her off. You know, and it's it's part of the problem with these whole intermediary services or that were required in some states to use because by the time we might have the opportunity to speak with our family, things have already happened that maybe didn't necessarily need to happen the way that they did. And that had to be incredibly frustrating for you. And yeah, so to, to back up a little bit though, let's, let's talk about, cause I need to take a moment. I mean, I feel so bad cause I know so many of us find our grandparents first because our mother's names have changed with marriages or they have, right. a, um, yeah. And our grandparents often end up being like the gatekeepers for whether or not we can speak with our mothers and they don't always know that we existed and there can be anger there because now they've realized their child has lied to them. Right. Their grandchild and their potential great grandchildren or great, great grandchildren that they've been denied the opportunity to know. So that blame gets transferred to us. Like, it's our parents' fault for not telling our grandparents, but somehow it's our fault when we make contact. And the unfairness of that is so astronomical, Uh, but so so many adoptees end up carrying it. So many of us carry that for our families. Hence the the title of my book, The Lies That Bind. It meant so much to me on so many levels, you know, this lie that she never told, you know, a lie by omission. She never told her parents or her mother or anybody else in her family, her her siblings. She never told anyone. She had a child, um, which kind of makes me sad, Yeah. too, you know, Um that she had to go through that all alone. I mean, did nobody go visit her in prison? They couldn't, you know, they never saw she was pregnant, you know? Um, they didn't know she was pregnant when she was arrested. And and um, it's just, it, it kind of made me sad, but again, it was a lie. And then she perpetuated the lie by making me, you know, my grandmother now is uh, has passed away a few years ago, but, you know, she, my mother, kept that lie going by insisting I not contact the grandmother and tell her, cause she still, she still denied it to her. Even after this, these, this contact from the investigator and the social worker, um, she says, you know, I've never told my mother that I had a, a child and this will kill her that I never told her. Duh, you lied to her for, so. Oh, and then know. to hold you hostage in the hopes that you can have any kind of relationship or ask, any kind of questions of your mother becomes contingent upon you participating in the lie. Right. You know, and that is, that is so wrong. That is just so incredibly wrong. And by allowing this practice 
of adoption the way that we do, we just keep perpetuating the potential for all that harm, like all those lies, because we erase people's identities and then we don't let them have access to it. Now, you had to go the route of hiring a private investigator because the state of California would not just let you go apply for your original for a copy of your original birth certificate. Right. And I, you know, to be honest, I kind of always assumed that, especially after the um, non-identifying information, um, my I assumed that my birth certificate was blank where it said birth father and, but I did, but it would be interesting to have it. Right. So, uh, and I wasn't going to get any information from my mother about my birth father and that side of the fam of the family. So I did think about, um, I want to use the word applying, applying for my birth certificate, because it feels like that, you know, it's like you have to file a petition in, in, in a court and it's a, it's a two prong process to get one, your birth certificate from the health department of the state and two, the paperwork, the adoption, the file, the legal file that's there in the local courthouse to get that, which is sealed as well. So, um, I did actually do a lot of research and did start to, um, do a petition for that. I never filed it. Uh, I started it, kind of put it aside, started, was started up again and became really frustrated. It's weird in California. Uh, I think we've talked about this before, but the, um, you know the laws. The laws are that the records are sealed, and you have to uh, file a petition in court and to get them unsealed. And um, you know you have to have good and compelling cause to want these records unsealed. Okay, well, yeah, good and compelling cause is. What does that mean? You know, a health reason, or does that mean you know you already know who they are? So let me have these records. What what is the good and compelling cause? You know. Well, and that's, I read through the law again today, just to kind of brush up on it. And it says that you have to demonstrate a medical necessity or extraordinary circumstance to have your own records, your own original birth certificate unsealed. So, and, and how does the judge decide what's a medical necessity? Do I need to be dying or do I just need to be concerned that maybe I have a genetic predisposition towards something? Yeah. Like, and what's an extraordinary circumstance? How do they decide what's an extraordinary circumstance? Um, I would like to know because it's my right or, or exactly. you, you have to have a child who I don't even know what the hell is an extraordinary circumstance. No, and, 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 and not only is it not defined, so you've got different judges all across the state deciding what extraordinary circumstances are and what good and compelling cause means, you know, and it's up to this uh, judge depends whose desk it lands on. Right. And 
something else I found interesting was different counties um, the, in the court system will have a form for it. So you basically have to check boxes and fill in a few words and, you know, they make it easier. So for you to do this now, my County where I was born, San Bernardino County, um, didn't have a form. So you had to, I had to do all this research and luckily I, I have a legal background. So I was able to figure out how to do a petition and, and, you know, um, request it but it's the part about good and compelling cause and extraordinary circumstances you know i would get to that part and and i mean it was easy to write it was easy to say well i have a right to know and blah, you know all that stuff that we preach all the time we have a right to our records without question but it just pissed me off that i had to justify wanting this information so i never did file a request. I still do not have my original birth certificate. Um, it makes me feel good every time I hear news that another state is opening their records, you know, and um, I keep thinking in the back of my mind, maybe someday California will. But on the other hand, um, after all these years now, with the DNA testing and and the internet being a wide open database of how to find people, it's, it's kind of made it a, a moot point. And so... Um, it still pisses me off because I do, I do have a right to that information and I feel that deeply, but um, I also don't want to have to, you know, follow the rules and, and then be denied it. Well, and that's the thing too, is that you can go through the whole process and this is something they don't tell people. You can go through the process of appealing to the court, spending all of the filing fees and going through all of that. And they can still tell you no. Right. And, and you have a legal background, so you understand legal language. How many of your average citizens would know how to navigate the court system in order to put together a successful appeal? I haven't heard of a California adoptee yet. If there's one out there, contact me because I would love to talk. But there are so many barriers to access presented by the state of California, which advertises itself as a very progressive state. Yeah, I know we're both right. Like, a joke. right. So, so California adoptees, just for information here, California is a sealed state. When you are adopted, your uh, identity is erased and sealed away. Your adoptive parents on your amended birth certificate at any time can omit from your amended birth certificate the name and address of the hospital where you were born, the city and county where you were born, and the color and race of your parents. Yeah. They can omit all of that information from your amended birth certificate. They list themselves as if you were born to them. So there is no indication on your amended birth certificate that you are adopted. So there are, you know, somebody asked me, why would you lie? I'm like, sweetheart, so many of us were lied to. And there is no legal requirement for adoptive parents to tell an adoptee that they've been adopted. 
none, zero. Yeah. And you know, I, uh, when I, um, found, when I did find the name of my, uh, father and, um, already knew my mother's name, I actually sent a request through to the state instead of locally, um, for my birth certificate using, you know, cause you can do it by mail, right? You can send, you can say, okay, well, um, father's name. And I put my birth father's name, mother's name, put my birth mother's name. And, um, first name, I just put baby girl and last name I put me, you know, but because they didn't name me, but, um, I requested it like that. Say it was almost like a, you know, F you I'm, I, I have a right to this. And I just sent it in like that. I didn't file a petition. And of course it came back with a little short letter. Uh, this record is sealed. You know, you have to file. A petition. I mean, I still have that letter somewhere, but it's yeah. Like I, it's like you're in witness protection from yourself. Right. It's, it's just like so we, ridiculous. Yeah. It's like, we've decided to conceal you from you because you might endanger you. So it's, it's, insane. Yeah. it's absolutely insane. And, you know, we can say, well, we don't really need to do this anymore because we have DNA and we could just use DNA and we could figure it out that way. But this ignores the fact that so many people can't afford to go through these processes. I mean, I know people who have not pursued their identities, not because they don't want to, which is what other people like to say, well, yeah. my, this person I know is adopted and they haven't, they don't care. They haven't tried. I'm like, I've talked to that person. And the reason they haven't tried is one, they don't have the money to pay for the DNA because it's not just the DNA test. It's the subscriptions to the DNA companies so that you can use the tools that are right. on the sites it's also because they're afraid to say anything to you about the fact that they want to know because your attitude is crystal clear. Mm -hmm. Like you don't need to know and you should be grateful. And what will your adopted parents think of this? And, you know, you're going to destroy somebody's life and just all they hear that, even if you don't think you're saying it to them. And so there are all these bars to access. You spent a lot of money at a time when you could have been investing that money into starting your life as a recent college graduate. Yeah. And it's just, it's insane that my kids and your kids born, well, one of my children was born in the state of California. Um, I haven't lived here my whole life, <laughs> but um, what it costs us like 30 bucks or something to apply for our a copy of our kids birth certificates yeah and we and they just send it to us you just fill in a little form they send you a copy there's no like hoops you have to jump through you don't have to notarize anything you don't have to justify yourself for needing a copy of it you just go get one. Well, and, and I find it interesting too, you know, you mentioned that you can omit that, that, you know, on the amended birth certificate, uh, you can omit information that is true, but you can also put in whatever you want. 
you can make stuff up, which, you know, is what my, my parents did as to where I was born because nobody wanted to indicate that I was born, you know, in prison. So they made up, a, they made it up. Yeah, I think they allow them in California and I would have to double check because um, here's my disclaimer. I'm not a lawyer. Um, I would have to double check, but I think you're right. I think it says that in the state of California, and I know this is true in a lot of other states, the adoptive parents can substitute the name of the city and county where they reside as the place where the person was born in, instead of where they were actually born. So then when you do go to try and find where you yeah. came from, your origins, you're starting with lies. Yes. And, and, and we had that, we had that kind of, I had that, it, well, it didn't turn out to be a problem because I knew I was born in the, in the prison and I knew what county that was in. Um, but my birth certificate, so anyway, make a long story short, my parents changed the city. So it didn't look like I was born at the prison but they didn't change. I don't know. Somehow the county didn't get changed. So, so that was born in the city that's in a totally different county than their amended birth certificate. And it's like, okay, well, this is flat out wrong. How the heck have I been able to get like um, a passport and all this stuff with all these blanks and fake information on it? But I'm one of the lucky ones because I do know that a lot of adoptees have had trouble getting um, passports. Have you? Yeah. It's like, you know, and I, 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 they issued me a passport like it was no big deal. So, was this before? Was it before nine eleven or after? Um, I guess the well before, I guess. Okay. Have so. you tried to get your real ID yet? Yes. Did you? That get wasn't it? a problem either. Yeah, that wasn't a problem either. And they've told me three times that my amended birth certificate is not adequate. I don't know if part of it is because I am an inter-country adoptee. So um, my amended birth certificate shows where I was born in England. So I was born in England, but I've lived here in the United States since I was two, like two and a half. And I'm having all kinds of problems getting them to issue me a real ID. I'm going to be able to get a passport because I had one from when I was an infant. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? So, so they're willing to accept my passport from when I was a kid. Cause the last time it was renewed was when I was 15, when I went to oh, the yeah. UK and to Spain. So I dug that up. I just happened to find it in my records out in my garage. And so they're willing to accept that I can reapply for a passport, but I'm going to have to take in, according to the supervisor at the DMV, my expired passport, my amended birth certificate, my original birth certificate, my marriage certificate, all of this stuff I'm going to have to take in with me. And you have your original from the UK? Yeah, I had, to, I, I had to send away and get that which the UK is much more civilized than the United States. They actually allow adoptees. Well, in England, it's my understanding that in Ireland and Scotland, they're still struggling to get, um, because there was so much coercion during the baby scoop era when you and I were born in the United Kingdom, especially in Ireland and Scotland, 
there's so much falsified mm. information and so much missing information and so much difficulty tracking down records. And I, I was fortunate that I was born in England in an area where they kept the records pretty carefully. Yeah. But, um, but what if I didn't have all that? You know, you don't have your original birth certificate yeah. and neither one of us were given a name. So how do I go in and go, this person on this amended birth certificate is the same person as this baby girl Mathis. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and this is not even like my birth mother's real first, like this is her stepfather adoption last name. So. Wow. Yeah. It's just crazy. Yeah. So you've been able to get yours. So good. We can offer some hope to some people. I guess it depends on the county that you're applying for your. Yeah. Well, and, and how, you know, and you wonder how smart or dumb, you know, the particular uh, agent is that's looking at your information because when you start explaining, you know, about being adopted and it being an amended birth certificate and the information isn't all, you know, you get somebody that understands that you might, you know, they might be more apt to go ahead and process everything and get it done. But, you know, somebody who doesn't understand that it's going to be like, nope, I can't cross off all the boxes on this one. It's something's wrong with it, you know, but they're not going to take the time to learn why, you know? Yeah. It's, it's crazy. It's like, I was born in England. I mean, what's this all about? How am I yeah, you a resident in this country? <laughs> and, and I did have to prove that I had a right to live here, which was yeah. fun. But um, so you, how did you even discover that California was a sealed state? Like when you decided you wanted to know, did you, had somebody told you California is not going to give you your information or did you have to figure out where to go and go ask somebody and then they told you how did that happen for you well uh when i came back from england i was i, I was majoring in political science i wanted to eventually go to law school which i never did but um i so when i came back i took courses to uh become a paralegal. So I stayed in school for a little while longer after I graduated to finish that up. And um, they had a certificate program there at the, at the California State University where I was. So I was taking those classes and some of the electives, you know, you could take, I kind of focused on family law and adoption law okay. just because I knew I was adopted and this was something that was on my mind, you know? So, so I did learn a lot doing that. I wrote a bunch of papers on, you know, all kinds of, so I did know already that it was a closed state and kind of what, you know, what that meant for the most part. And that's how I knew about the waiver, you know, that I, that I called the social workers. I, oh, well, you know, if someone has signed a waiver for me, maybe it, this will be real easy. You know, when I went to the social worker, I didn't know about that. And I did learn about, you know, different registries that were out there too. Um, but uh, yeah, so I had, I had an idea about it being closed. And back then a lot of the state, I think, every state was closed anyway still i think a, a lot, lot of states i think alaska may have never been closed i know there's at least one state that was never restricted but i know that there are still an awful lot of people out there who believe that adoptees can just go to their county when they turn 18 
and receive a copy of their original files. They are unaware of the fact, and this includes adoptees, because I didn't know, you know, especially as a late discovery person, but I've talked to people yeah. who grew up knowing, who found out when they decided that they really wanted to know where they came from at 18 or 24 or 35 or today years old that we have no legal right to their own original birth certificate and so many non-adoptees who don't realize how discriminated against adopted people are they just take it for granted oh of course they know of course they have the right to it It, no (laughs) 11 states 11 Vermont just passed a law. So there are now 11 states. But at the same time that Vermont just ratified a law to give unrestricted access, South Carolina, which is a sealed state, is passing additional legislation to make it even harder for adoptees to... I I read about that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and with the recent leaking of the SCOTUS thing and the wording about the domestic supply of infants and, <laughs> you know, and about how it's okay if we force women to give birth because they can just, Adoption. yeah, they'll be, suitable. be okay. He even says they'll have no trouble finding a suitable home for their children. What we're doing is we are, not me, I'm going to not say we, those people are creating even more citizens of this United States who are discriminated against by having their identities erased. Right. And having them treated as if their families of origin don't even exist. And it it, it makes no sense at this point for them to be that ridiculous um, about it because because of and and because of the DNA because the information is out there. I mean, I, I mean, I can see I can see why you know with all the research that I've done in the past, I can see why you know, they thought that they could get away with this. Babies were a clean slate, you know, they'll just, you know, they'll assimilate to their new homes. I mean, they thought all of this before they not, you know, I'm saying they, but you know, you know what I mean? You know, they ignored, you know, the, the, the truth and there was some truth out there, but I can see, you know, no one envisioned that DNA would come around and blow this Thing wide open, you know, and not that DNA is the answer because, like you said, not everybody has access to that. But um, it just, it just, I can't, I just don't understand how they think sealed records are, are anything good at this point. That there's any point to it, really. Yeah. When you're an adult at this point, you know. Yeah, it's just it's discriminatory and it's harmful and it's harmful to everyone involved in my opinion because I don't think it's very difficult to have a truly intimate relationship with anyone who conceals things from you whether they think it's for your own good or not and that includes our relationship with the state 
like I don't have a tremendous amount of respect for a state and a government that thinks it's okay to discriminate against a group of people uh, the way that they are that they have been doing and the way that they propose to expand that and states and governments only work when they have credibility and at, and at this point to not acknowledge that that's damaging yeah. people in a way you know in a lot of ways it's damaging to the adoptee and and they won't acknowledge that yeah. you know that's appalling to me oh yeah and in a state like you know we live in california so i'm just picking on california but we, you know, we consider ourselves progressive. Our governor is currently pledging to, and I'm going to say right now, adoptees are not the ones conflating abortion and adoption. We're being forced Absolutely. into this conversation because of other people's actions. So this is not a position on abortion. This is me saying because of other people's positions, we are going to force children into a system that denies them their rights as individuals, you know, when they grow up. And our state governor in California is assuring people that he will continue to allow women's reproductive rights. At the same time, I have written to him, and I know other people have, asking why adoptees who are the logical consequence of other states forcing women to give birth, why is California continuing to deny adoptees access, access to the records? Why is California continuing to promote closed mm -hmm. sealed adoptions? Why is California still one of the biggest suppliers of anonymous donor conception materials? Oh, yeah. Yeah. When other, when there are countries that have outlawed anonymous donation, you know, why is California, and all I can think is cha-ching, <laughs> you know, yeah, people are making absolutely. money off of this system. And so they don't want to change anything. They want to keep it the way it is because they're making money off of it because they can get away with it. Um, it's a business for a lot of people. And that's what happens when anything, when change does get proposed, um, you know, if it threatens somebody's livelihood or business, you know, the lobbyists come out, the, you know, the people who want to, to keep the livelihood going for them, yeah. you know, it's a business. Yep. And Politicians with greater political aspirations need money to further their political goals. So, yeah, yeah yes, I am saying something about you, Governor Newsom. I'm, yeah. <laughs> I'm not, I am not being subtle about it. Uh, so anyway, back to the conversation we were having. Sorry about that. Oh, that's okay. We, I'm, I'm enjoying these tangents. I'm enjoying it. It's uh yeah. So one of the things that we talk about on the show are ways that we can um, help cope with 
like all the physical, mental, and emotional challenges of trying to navigate what is like a, a difficult process, you know? I mean, you're a young person, you're no, thank you. <laughs> okay. okay. You know, we were looking back retrospectively here, but <laughs> okay. Because <laughs> okay. you and I are both, as my doctor has told me, you're old. Yeah. <laughs> my doctor's just told me you're an old person now. Uh, but you look wonderful. You still look <laughs> thank you. We're in our final act. Yeah. You know, and my husband says the saggy ages. Mm-hmm. So uh, I know that. Yeah. So you're discovering as you're going through your paralegal training that what you want to achieve, you're going to have to do in in another way. And that can't have been easy to like read that here I am an adopted person and here are laws that are discriminating against me. And then you're trying to figure out how to navigate it with your adoptive family and how their reactions. And then you found your mother and you're dealing with the emotional part of that. And emotions are physical. We feel them in our bodies. So anybody going through this or thinking about going through this needs to have ways to deal with all of this. Yeah, well, I was not prepared for dealing with it. And I think that's the case with most adoptees, no matter no matter what point in time they have to deal with something that's a big blow. Like for instance, yours was even finding out you were adopted, you know, at an, at an older age. Um, but, you know, the secondary rejection from my birth mother, I wasn't prepared for that. I thought I would be. And, you know, I was, you know, 20, I don't know how old I was, 26 or something, 25, 24. But um, yeah, I was angry, very sad. I cried, of course. And then, you know, I, I didn't really deal with it. I, I, you know, I got married, had a kid, um, reached out to her again, still got shut down, you know, got divorced. And, you know, looking back, I can see how that rejection affected every part of my life, being married, divorced, raising a kid on my own. And I I look back and I can, I can see, you know, losing it, you know, not changing jobs and things like that. I, I, I didn't deal well with rejection and I was afraid of it. And I never, dealt with it. You know, I, I, I kind of made it, but I, I made myself the butt of a joke a lot, a lot of times, you know, um, when it came to talking about my adoption and her rejecting me. And it wasn't until I started writing, um, you know, I, for years I did legal research and writing um, and I stuck my head in a book and I loved you know, doing that kind of thing, even though it was really boring. I didn't do, I was a paralegal for 25 years and I didn't do litigation. You know, I didn't do stuff that other people would consider kind of exciting. I mean, my husband was a prosecutor for 25 years and that was exciting work. He'd come home and tell me about cases. I liked sticking my head in a book and just, and then writing my opinion about things or, you know, doing the research and explaining it. So, but it wasn't until I was 
in my 50s that I started thinking, well, I, I, I can write for myself. And, you know, I, I had a food blog for a while because I, I love to cook and I did that for a while. And then the, the whole thing with the adoption, just, I don't, I, you know, it came about, I don't even remember, but I started writing about it. Uh, I did read, I was reading other people's adoption stories and I came across somebody else's blog, um, Deanna Schrodes. She had a blog telling her adoption uh, story. And I remember reading that and just like it took a couple of days. I read through it. She, it was a serial blog, told her whole story about finding her biological mother and the rejection from that. And um, I remember thinking, well, my story would make a good story. And so I started writing it down. And that's when it hit me. This is how I can process it. And it was really a miracle to me that writing it down, you know, you have to relive it, which can be painful. But at the same time, you're writing and you're sharing with other people. And I'm reaching out to other people in the adoption community and sharing my story and hearing other stories. And um, that helped me, you know, to, I don't want to, it helped me to heal. I don't, I don't particularly like that word word when you're talking about adoption and the scars that are left from that and the trauma, but um, it does, you do heal a little bit. There's always going to be a scar, but you need to heal. You need to process the anger, the other emotions, which can be sadness, um, you know, desperation and, you know, and the anger keeps coming back in between all of that because, you know, people are keeping secrets from you, lying to you. And, you know, it's, and, and like you said, the, the government, the people, you know, that run this place, um, keeping secrets from you and people that you love or keep, you're supposed to love are keeping secrets from you. And, um, the anger just lives there, you know? So writing helps you process it and gives you validation because you're inevitably going to share what you write and people are going to reach out and, um, it's great. I, I, that's how I processed it. And writing the book for me um, was, was great. And the adoption community, reaching out, connecting with other adoptees has been wonderful and a great way to process it, process this whole thing. And you're never finished processing it. I mean, even though I wrote the book, I'm still processing it. I mean, I, talking to you helps me process other feelings, you know, and makes me think about um, things that you're go going through that I wouldn't go through because I wasn't a late discovery adoptee, but I'm like, our stories can also, I can find similarities, you know, in them. Um, so for me, writing really helped to process a, a lot of that. And when I have questions about it too, I, you know, still to this day, that will prompt a, a new blog post or prompt me to write something with a, you know, in a writer's group and, and, you know, people will go, oh, yeah, I never thought of it that way. Or I'll have the same reaction to something that another adoptee is writing. And it's kind of, it's healing in a way. Validation is, uh, is more of the word I, I guess I should use rather than healing. But, um, yeah, writing has helped me do that. Yeah, I think those are all really important things for people to understand, you know, that Healing can be a word in the adoptee community that can be almost weaponized against people. Like, why aren't you done healing yet? 
why are you, you know, why haven't you healed? It happened a long time ago. Why are you still talking about it? Yes. I, they don't realize that because being adopted, it doesn't end like every stage of your life, some aspect of being adopted is, is something that you have to live through, whether it's your, your own kids being born and realizing that they don't get to know their aunts and uncles and their grandparents or your great grandkids being born and realizing, you know, these are, these are the only people, your kids and your grandkids or whatever, the only people that resemble you that, you know, or that they're not going to grow up with those family traditions. Or if you don't know who your family is, you have to worry about like your kids dating somebody that they're related to or, yes you know or yourself things yeah all these things that that other people don't think of yeah yeah or you hit menopause age and your doctor asks you how old was your mother when she had went through menopause and you're like I don't know yeah (laughs) I have no clue you know uh, or they ask you does colon cancer run in your family eh I don't know yeah Uh, there's always going to be something But if you have those coping strategies, you're able to write it and process it and share it and receive the validation and know that you're not so alone in it, that can be our version of healing. It doesn't doesn't mean it goes away. It's, it's It's like any other loss of a loved one. You don't heal from losing your parent you don't heal from losing your spouse if they die you don't heal from losing a child you learn to live with it and you have days some days are better than other days and you might have a days where you don't think about that person and you can be thankful that you know like today's a really good day and I've got people in my life I care about, or I've got a job I love, or I'm physically doing okay today or whatever it is. But the loss doesn't just magically go away. Yeah. And there are, and there are, you know, it's the feelings that we have to deal with. I'm glad you brought that up are are like the death of a loved one, because, you know, I mean, as adoptees, I'm, you know, we all have to deal with secrets, lies. I mean, I don't care, you know, if you knew you were adopted. I mean, like for me, it's like, you know, my birth mother still perpetuated this lie that I didn't exist, you know, secrets, lies, and that creates a darkness. It's like, I'm existing in this dark place, you know, um, oppression, feeling like I can't be myself. I don't know myself. Right. And, and, some adoptees feel shame about being adopted. I, I, I don't know that I ever felt that, but I, I get it. I think my birth mother felt shame. That's why she didn't tell anybody that she had a baby, but you know, and, and to deal with that stuff is, is about telling someone, I mean, I don't have, you know, a sister or anybody I can confide in or anybody that I'm close to my adopted brother and I are as different as night and day. So writing helped me to get it out there. And, you know, it's, it's like grief and mourning for all those dark things, all those dark emotions. And, and you're right, it's not going to ever really go away. It's like, but how do you move to the other side of it? 
it's still going to be there, but you got to be on the other side of it and writing it all out and dealing with it that way, you know, is, is worked for me. Um, you know, but I'm always going to be dealing with those, those issues. Yeah. You know, the way that you describe it, it makes me think of what I would teach students who are struggling with like a big assignment. Like here's this end of the semester essay that you have to write. It's got to have an intro. It's got to have the body. It's got to have a conclusion. And they would look at the entire task and be so overwhelmed that they would be frozen. They couldn't deal with it. it. Just the thought of it was too traumatic for them to address. So we would teach them, take it in little chunks, you know? Yeah. Take it in bites, like just focus on this first part. And then when you're done with that, you can move on to the next part. And that's what, you know, what we're talking about kind of reminds me of, we take our life stages as adoptees in these chunks and we can process that part of it through writing or for some people it's, you know, yoga or painting or. Right. Yeah. And then we have to address the next part because no matter what we do, that next part comes like we could try and avoid it. And a lot of adoptees do practice avoidance. I, you know, they drink, they use drugs, um, sex, um, all those things. Yeah. To Uh, blur the edges. Yeah. Yeah. Over, you know, overeating have like disordered eating. I mean, there's disordered exercising. There's all these different ways that we can try to cope with that chunk, that part that we're trying to, to ignore. Like we don't want it to, we know it's there. Uh, But really, you know, if we can find ways to cope with it and get to the other side of that part of life or or the assignment or whatever, however you want to look at it, that reminds me of, um, I know you must have heard of, you know, Anne Lamott and her book, Bird by Bird. That's exactly the premise of it. How am I going to deal with this whole big, ugly thing? But, you know, one little part of it at a time, you know. And whether, like you said, whether it's writing or yoga or, um, you know, and, and, and by writing, it doesn't have to be writing a memoir, a perfectly little, you know, package of, of stories either. You know, it could be poetry. I know you do a lot of poetry and I, I'm amazed by that because I'm not a poet, but, uh, it, you know, it could just be journaling, you know, stream of consciousness, just write it down, yeah. you know, get it out of your head and onto the paper and you're dealing with it in one way or another. And you, you know, it's, that works for me, but there are, like you said, other ways, you know, people exercise or, um, yeah. Therapy is another good way. And I, I, you know, I recommend that, but it's, it can be difficult to find somebody who is adoption, um, knowledgeable, you know, as a therapist, because a lot of our issues, uh, are dealt with without acknowledging that as a trauma. Yeah. And access, you know, that's another thing too, is that not everybody has access to mental health uh, services because they can be very expensive 
or they can be very limited. Like you have, you can go to three sessions. Well, yeah. You're not going to address a lifetime of adoption in three sessions. Right. It's not going to happen. So if you can, if you can write um, one adoptee in introducing herself to her family, did these little um, videos that she would, she did her story in a video and so that she didn't have to keep repeating it. She saved it and then she could send it to each family member as they reached out to her to get to know her, which yeah. I thought was really smart because she didn't have to re-traumatize herself by telling something that she didn't want to have to repeat over and over again. Yeah. I, so there are so many creative ways that we can we can cope and I'm so thankful for people like yourself and, you know, other adoptees who've had the self-discipline to sit down and write a memoir because reading your work has helped me so much. And, you know, and other people who are putting their memoirs on podcasts or writing them in their blogs, you know, I, and I think too, if we give ourselves permission to acknowledge that this is an ongoing thing, um, then we can stop putting so much pressure on ourselves as adoptees to get over it and stop talking about it and stuff. Yeah, it's a journey. And there, uh, one word I, I will not use um, is closure. You will never have closure. You want all the information that you can get still not going to have closure. You just, you, you're, it's just, it's, it's, and, and the healing is a process and it, it will go on forever. Yeah. And, you know, just coincidentally, as we kind of come to a close here, this podcast will be published on Mother's Day. Oh, and yay, Mother's Day. Mother's <laughs> Day. I know. Mother's Day is hugely problematic for a lot of adoptees. And even, you know, sorry to say this, people, but even good experience adoptees struggle with Mother's Day. You know, I can't speak for every single one of us, but every single one I've talked to so far struggles with Mother's Day, whether it's like a moment of wondering if their mother thinks about them on Mother's Day or a moment of guilt that they have have even thought about their mother you know, how would their, would that hurt their adoptive mom that they even thought about their mother? Uh, if they're, a, if they're a parent themselves. Yes. I, so I just want to acknowledge that this is going to go out on Mother's Day in a week where the adoption community is being like, just shaken propagandized and so like traumatized by what's being put out there so thanks for that yeah (laughs) yeah mother's day yeah mother's day has always been kind of a weird thing too for me i mean obviously i never i still haven't never met my birth mom um and haven't written to her spoken to her never spoken to her 
but never hadn't even written to her since, you know, it's been over 30 years. But um, my, and my adopted mom has been gone since 2002 and we were never close. I mean, she, we just, we never bonded. And I realize that now um, that, you know, and it's hard for me, I think of her, but I don't, it's, it's weird for me to feel like I'm, I need to honor her on this day. But I, so I try to focus on my kids and if they don't make a big deal about Mother's Day for me, then I get all offended, you know, because you know, it's got to be, you know, not about them. It's about me and being a mom to you guys. So that's what I want to make it about. But, you know, they're, you know, they're young adults now and boys. And so it's, it's there's never a lot of fanfare around my house on Mother's Day. Let's just put it that way. Plus, it's my husband's birthday. So... <laughs> So it's all about him. So yeah. you know. so you just get kind of pushed to the side. That, yeah. doesn't, that doesn't sound like a very good feeling. I'm sorry. Yeah, Mother's Day kind of is, is weird, as I'm sure it is for, well, like you were saying, most adoptees have some opinion or feeling about it. Not always positive. But, but happy Mother's Day to all the mothers there that are mothers, that mother their children. That's what's important now yeah i i have mixed emotions this will be the second one since my adoptive mom died and i think it's funny how so many of us make excuses for our sons but we expect our daughters to remember mother's day and i think that's this internalized kind of (laughs) sexism that we've We've been taught, oh, boys, they just, they don't think about their boys. things. And, you know, I, I'm personally don't really buy that because I'm kind of like, they're human beings and I raised mine and they should, <laughs> their memories and any appreciation they have should be just as great as if I had raised a person with a uterus. But um, yeah, but it's not, they're boys, they're uh, different. Yeah, they're, the culture gives them a pass. Um, so, but it isn't it funny then because they say like in a foxhole, the first person a guy calls for is his mom. Like in, in wartime, the whole stereotype is the person calling for their mom. So yeah, anyway, uh, yeah. it's, it's difficult. And I, I just, if you're out there and you're an adoptee and you're a, a mom and you are doing the very best that you can hang in there it's it's not easy to be a parent when you're an adoptee I don't think I I mean maybe for some adoptees it is and I think that's awesome but for me I didn't get that modeled so me too yeah and just take care of yourself today. You know, if you're an adopted person and you're struggling today, there's, we're bombarded with all of the Mother's Day messages and everything. Yeah, that's hard. Yeah, and that can be really hard. And for the people who listen to this and they hear Lorene and I saying that neither one of us have a good relationship with our mothers, you know, the people who gave birth to us. 
please don't use that to reinforce your idea that, oh, well, your mothers didn't even want you. So it's all, why do you even care about who your mother is? And why did you have to cause all that disruption by getting in touch with them? And uh, no, I'm sorry, but the mothers I have spoken with, and I can't, I know there are women who did not want to be mothers. Okay. I know that, but the the women that I have talked to, my mother wanted me. She was forced to give me up. What she doesn't want is to be reminded. And I okay. remind her. She was never allowed to grieve the loss of a child. I don't know if your mom was ever allowed no, she didn't acknowledge it. Yeah, they were told to just move on as if it never happened. Like, that's possible, you know? Yeah. And, you know, you can't... For them, they lost a child. They were denied the ability to grieve. They were told that they didn't even deserve to talk about their feelings because they were bad women. You know, they were, there was all this shame that they were forced to endure. <clears throat> so we, when we show up, sometimes we just remind them of everything that they lost, everything that they went through, everything that they were never allowed to process. I, it's, in my experience, it's the mothers who were allowed to acknowledge the loss and given the opportunity to process the loss and given the ability to share in what they went through, who are much more welcoming and able to acknowledge their children when they appear in their lives. And I think that language is really important to, <clears throat> to say. And I, I used to say, so-and-so gave up a child for adoption or so-and-so, you know, relinquished a child for adoption or I was given up for adoption. But, you know, more recently in the last few years, I, and I went to a uh, CUB conference last year. CUB is Concerned United Birth Parents. And it is a group of mostly Baby Scoop era birth mothers. And they, you know, their words are, I lost a child to adoption. I lost my child, my son, my daughter to adoption. I lost it, you know, I lost a child, not I gave up a child because they, you know, for a lot of them, like you said, they didn't give away their babies. They were forced or, uh, you know, even in some cases the babies were taken from them against their will or they were coerced or so. So, yeah, I think it's important to when you hear someone say I lost a child to adoption that that's acknowledged and really heard in a, in a way that's different um, than I gave up a child for adoption which is you know what I used to say I was given up for adoption my mother gave me up for adoption well she lost me to adoption and I think she was really one of the people who didn't want children she never had any children after me um, but then again I don't know her she hasn't allowed me to know her. So I don't know how she really feels about it. And I suspect she's never dealt with it, you know, processed it. 
meaning the pain, the grief, if, you know, didn't allow herself to, to feel any of that. Um, she was in a really odd situation being in prison. So, um, you know, that's her story, not mine. Um, but it's, it's kind of sad, but, um, I can't force it, you know? So, so yeah, Mother's Day is, is tricky, but I respect mothers, even those that lost children to adoption, they're still mothers, you know? And I wonder if it's painful for them too. I'm sure it is for a lot of them on Mother's Day. Yeah. So I just want to, yeah, I just want to acknowledge the, the women who have lost children to adoption, the women who may be forced to lose children to adoption in the coming days, um, the, the women who are adoptees who are mothers, you know, um, just find a way to take care of yourself on a difficult day. Uh, because you matter, your voices matter, your presence here matters, and uh, it's okay if Mother's Day has you feeling kind of kind of sad and uncertain about things. So thank you so much for being here with me today. Is there any like piece of wisdom that you would like to leave the listeners with as far as yeah i i uh i would like to encourage everybody every adoptee birth mother um anybody that has questions about their past especially adoptees if you have a question get it answered don't second guess whether or not you should search reach out don't second guess it this is your life I, you might step on somebody's feelings, you might piss somebody off, but to live with a question and to live under this, you know, dark cloud of needing answers is not fun. So reach out, find it, find that person, find those answers. You know, you might, uh, I just encourage you to go for it no matter what it is, it may not even have anything to do with adoption, but if there's a question about your life, somebody you love's life, go for it. All right. Well, thank you. And we will include some information on uh, ways that you can find answers to some of your questions uh, in the show notes. And uh, thank you so much again, Lorraine, for being here. I'm writing notes to myself <laughs> for being here with me today. I always enjoy talking with you and thank you to the people listening. And thank you, Andy. This was really nice. I enjoy talking with you too. So I'm sure we'll talk again soon. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much.